0: But we're going to go now to the word of God. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter nine. Mark chapter nine, we will be in verses 14 through 32 as we look today at the healing power of prayer, the healing power of prayer. As we walk our way through this passage, we'll see this central truth that prayer is where God's infinite strength meets our weakness. Prayer is where God's infinite strength meets our weakness as i have in the prior couple of weeks i shared this outline over email and so if you need to reference that you're more than welcome to but we're going to walk through today a story of the disciples inability and jesus's infinite ability first in verses 14 through 22 we'll see that the disciples can't they're overwhelmed as leaders they're in a hostile environment and there's powerful spiritual opposition so the disciples can't secondly we'll see that jesus Can because he in himself is enough in spite of us, in spite of our lack of faith and strength, and he does this through prayer. At the end of this story, after this powerful demonstration from Jesus, we'll see in verses 30 through 32 the disciples still can't. The disciples still can't. We're going to look together at the close of our time at some tips on prayer at the close of this, and the first is that we should just pray. Pray. Secondly, find places to go and things we can do to help us pray. Thirdly, use written guides in prayer. And fourthly, use scripture, use God's word as we pray. So I'll begin reading now in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. So this is uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell down on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus and his disciples have just come down from the mountain, what we commonly know as the Mount of Transfiguration. This mountaintop experience is not unlike uh, the experience Moses had on Mount Sinai. In the book of Exodus, Moses is on the mountain for six days. God appears to Moses, shows him his glory, and reveals to him the law covenant. And so Moses is having this experience speaking with God there on the mountain. And yet down at the foot of the mountain, the people can see what's going on, yet they aren't experiencing it personally. They're pursuing, frankly, idolatry, worldliness. Their hearts are turning from God. So Moses is on the mountain and he comes down and the people have made a golden calf. And the moment Moses sees this, he is irate. He destroys the calf. He breaks the Ten Commandments and he cannot believe the idolatry of the people. And what we see in the life of Moses there and actually now paralleled in the life of Christ is that mountaintop experiences are often followed by real life chaos. And that chaos brings with it a realization of our weakness. And in today's passage, we'll see That prayer is where God's infinite strength meets our weakness. So like Moses, when Jesus, Peter, James, John come down from the mountain, they find the disciples in chaos. Now they haven't made a golden calf, yet they're surrounded by a giant crowd. They've got Jewish leaders there stirring up trouble. The disciples are in this argument with these leaders. And right into this moment, this giant argument walks Jesus. And we see in this passage, there's this interweaving of human weakness with God's power. And the first thing we see is human weakness. The disciples can't, verses 14 through 22. The disciples can't because they exhibit the fact they are an overwhelmed group, they're overwhelmed leadership. Now, Mark doesn't immediately tell us the cause of this argument, just that there is this argument going on. The description in verse 14 is really clear. The disciples, uh, they're attempting to minister, and yet they're caught up with what's going around them. Now, Jesus, Peter, James, and John have just had this radical, vertical experience as the glory of God descended on Jesus on the mountain. They've seen the presence and glory of the Father. The Father speaks in a way that he spoke at Jesus' baptism. It's this remarkable moment. But the other disciples are caught up in horizontal chaos. So there's this small group of people that have had this vertical experience of God's glory, and yet everyone else is captured in chaos. There's a crowd of people that increases the pressure on the disciples, but there's a particular group of people that are stirring this up. It's the scribes again. And they're making pointed attacks at Jesus' followers. Now, the good news is the disciples haven't been lazy. They've been trying to carry on Jesus' good works while he's away. And yet in Jesus' absence, they don't meet with the same success. Perhaps sensing that this is a moment where Jesus, his entire movement are vulnerable, the scribes swoop in. Now, as you know by now, the scribes are experts in the law, religious leaders in Israel, and, and they're better equipped than anyone else to trip up these disciples. So this brings these these overwhelmed leaders to a hostile environment, a hostile environment. Well, it's likely knowing the track record of the disciples that they're just complete idiots here, that they have just completely messed this up. Now, we know this in part because of what follows, but also because of the crowd's response to Jesus. Verse 15, when the crowd saw him, they were greatly amazed. Now, We see crowds amazed at Jesus all the time. But normally they're amazed after he does something, after he heals someone, after he feeds a crowd, after he raises someone from the dead. But here he hasn't done anything and the people are surprised. They're amazed to see him. The word that Mark uses is an extremely strong word that communicates a sort of trembling astonishment that that borders almost on panic. The crowd sees Jesus and, and they can't believe it. Jesus' appearance provokes a strong reaction, but this time, the reaction is one of trembling hope. One minute, everyone is arguing, and the next minute, Jesus is there. Now, the focus in the story at this point shifts. So up to this point, the focus has been on the scribes and their conflict with the disciples, and now the focus shifts to Jesus, because we're going to see that Jesus is where the true authority, the true power, lies. Now, this no doubt frustrates the scribes to no end. Now, it's likely that Jesus' question in verse 16 is addressed to the scribes. What are you arguing about with them? He knows who the real troublemakers are. They're attempting to discredit Jesus by arguing by discrediting his followers. But the disciples and the scribes are spared more embarrassment because a voice from the crowd answers. Jesus addresses this question, and then a single person answers, verse 17, teacher, rabbi, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Now, this spirit, we can see, is particularly violent, setting this boy into terrible seizures, endangering his life. It sounds like we think it's a case of epileptic seizures, which can be life threatening today, let alone in the first century. So Jesus asks the question, what are you arguing about? But but this man doesn't answer it directly. Rather, he presents something that is at the heart of his personal concern, his son's health. And here we have the immediate occasion for this argument. Because, Jesus, you weren't here, I asked your disciples, would they cast it out? And they weren't able. And it's in this moment that we're introduced to powerful spiritual opposition, powerful spiritual opposition so in this moment we have enemies that we can see scribes are the enemies the disciples can see and yet there are forces more powerful than the scribes that work here the spirit who lives in this boy energizes his fits and there's no doubt spiritual energy also energizing the attacks of the scribes on jesus's disciples when the crowd sees jesus they respond immediately to his presence Well, like the crowd, the demon does the same thing. When he sees Jesus, he throws the boy into a violent fit. Verse 20, the boy falls on the ground, rolls about. He's foaming at the mouth. This is a terribly tense moment. Verse 22 tells us some history of how this boy experienced it. It, This demon would cast him into the fire, into water, and seek to kill him, to destroy him. So this deputy of Satan, the ruler of demons, is seeking to accomplish one of Satan's great objectives. That is, the devouring of the souls of human beings who are made in the image of God. Now, this spirit is threatening the life of the boy. He's resisting and making a mockery of Jesus' disciples. He's stirring up discord and public chaos. And no doubt, this is incredibly frustrating to the disciples. They're trying to do the right thing and yet failing in the attempt. So as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of an experience. Uh, a few years ago. I'm not much of a a mechanic. And uh, what I do is kind of very low-level. My dad was the kind of guy he could, take a house apart, literally did it and and rebuilt it. Same thing with a car, tractor. He could take anything apart, put it back together with his hands. I'm not that way, but what little I know, I picked up from him. And a few years ago, I had a pulley break on our car. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna take a shot at this myself. Ordered the part, came and and I'm there working on it. And I'm feeling pretty good. It's it's going along pretty well. And I'm like, I've got this. But I reached what really should have been uh, the end of this little project. And I could not get the bolt to to actually bite to go into uh, the engine block. It was incredibly frustrating. It was beyond, it felt like it should be something very simple and yet it was beyond my power and skill. What I learned was as I looked at it, just the very tip of this bolt had broken off down in the engine block and I couldn't get it out. So here I'd done all this work and, and labored on it for far longer than it should have taken me and in the end I had to admit defeat. I could not do it, I had to take it to someone else who had better tools, better equipment, better know-how, so he could drill it out and replace a simple bolt. It should have been very simple. It was so frustrating because it felt like it should have been within my power to do, and it really wasn't. And here are the disciples in a moment like this. They've already successfully cast out demons. They have done this before. It feels like it should be within their power to do. They've been commissioned by Jesus to heal people and preach the gospel. And so it's reasonable that in this moment, they should expect that their power would be enough, yet they find themselves discouraged, defeated, overwhelmed. Have you ever felt like the disciples in this moment? I mean, you're just doing your dead level best. You're just doing the things that you know you ought to be doing, things you've done before even, and yet you find yourself failing. And then in the midst of knowing personally that you're failing, people around you and they're even well-intentioned tell you that you're failing and you feel helpless. Like, I know, but like, what do I do? And so in these moments, what happens is we combine the natural opposition of living in a fallen world with spiritual opposition, spiritual forces that love to see God's people and God's cause falter, and we've got a real mess. What happens in this moment when our own inability intersects with this spiritual battle? God puts his finger on our insecurities, doesn't he? And perhaps we're aging in life. We're all aging, but perhaps we're experiencing, feeling the effects of aging. We've always been able to do things for ourselves, but age, our minds, our bodies have taken away much of our strength. And something that we've always been able to do, we can no longer do. It's a place of incredible frustration. Strength that we've always been able to rely on is gone. Or maybe we're walking through life and we're in a place where we think we are loved and accepted. And then the people we thought were accepting us, friends at school, relationships, say something that's so hurtful and we know they don't know us and they don't seem to care. Or maybe... You're experiencing in a more intensified way. You're a mom throwing yourself into loving, serving your children. Children grow older. They make terrible choices that are maybe personally embarrassing or maybe destroying their lives, or in the worst case, just rejecting us. See, it doesn't matter where we are or who we are, but each of us has moments where God uses circumstances to put the finger of his grace on the pressure point of our insecurity. And God's grace in that moment feels like pain, not a gift from God. But it's in those moments where we begin to see what we truly think about Jesus's strength versus our self-reliance. And we learn in those moments that ministering without Jesus is a terrible place to be. When God exposes our weakness, we learn where our faith lies. Do we depend on our ability or are we able to trust Jesus by faith, even when it's being exposed, that we are completely unable to help ourselves? Uh, there's one thing that's frustrating when you, when you can do it and people think you can't, but here the disciples really can't. They are really failing. And while moments like this feel like a terrible place to be, it's actually a wonderful place. Because in the moments where our weakness is exposed, Jesus's sufficiency is revealed more beautifully, more completely, more fully. We see Jesus more clearly when we're at the end of our rope. And we'll see ultimately that prayer is what meets this gap. So this brings us from the disciples' inability to Jesus' ability. Jesus can, verses 23 to 29. Disciples can't, Jesus can. The Father's words in verse 22 launch us into another battle between Jesus and spiritual forces. The Father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus seizes on this phrase, if you can, and responds sharply. If you can. Of course I can. And then he turns the man's thoughts inside out. He's about to prove that he is more than up to this challenge. Jesus can because he is enough. I mean, sure, Jesus can do this. That's that's not the question. But he's not about to be provoked into just showing off because of a challenge. He turns around the the words of this father and, and he puts the weight of this back on him. Verse 23, all things are possible for the one who believes. You see, this is a battle for faith. Of course, Jesus can heal the boy. Of course, Jesus can bind the evil spirit. But does this father believe in Jesus's power? Does this father believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one with authority over every sphere of life? This is not a test of Jesus's ability. This is a test of the father's faith. Jesus is more than able to confront this issue. He's fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. He's defeated a legion of demons who bound a man at Gadara. He gave life to a little girl who was dead. A demon-possessed, Caesar-stricken little boy, that's, that's nothing for Jesus. That's no deal at all. So what follows is dependent in large measure on the response of this father. So Jesus can, because he's enough, in spite of us. And it's here we have the most famous and in some ways the most helpful statement in this story. It's one that we can all identify with at some level. Verse 24, the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, there are times we see Jesus performing a miracle whether or not someone believes. I mean, no doubt most of the people that he fed in the crowd of the 5,000 weren't actively placing faith in Jesus. Yet Jesus is concerned about the faith of this man. There's something refreshingly honest and human in the father's response. I believe, but help me because I don't believe too. And this morning, if you are in a point in life where you question the existence of the goodness or the power of God, perhaps it's due to a sin struggle, perhaps it's due to a life experience. A good place to start is with this man's prayer. Lord, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? I mean, there's a requirement for faith, but there's also a gracious enabling on the part of Jesus. Jesus says, if you believe, the father does not respond. I have faith that can move mountains. Now he's just got the smallest, I mean, the smallest amount. Of faith yet Jesus can work with that and the father is willing to throw himself on Jesus's mercy you see ultimately our security in Christ doesn't rest on the stability of our faith but on the power of our Savior Hebrews tells us Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who believe even those who are tempted to waver and weaken in their faith. And we all have ebbs and flows in our faith. But these ebbs and flows, the peaks and the valleys have a different range for each of us. Some of us tend to be confident people in our position in Christ. So even when we doubt, those doubts look relatively strong compared to someone who's painfully introspective about his or her faith in Christ. And yet Jesus will save those who are confident and those who are weak in faith just the same because he never changes, his power never fails. I mean, some of us experience this range of doubts. You yeah, I don't know, we're kind of high rollers, confident, optimistic people. And so when we doubt, you know, we, we doubt like this. But some of us start here at, at, at this person's bottom point, And that's our top point. The most confident we ever feel is the least confident this person feels. And yet in the end, salvation isn't based upon the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith and Jesus's power to save us. So God uses our struggles with unbelief to grow our faith. The beautiful thing about this miracle is that not only can Jesus heal the boy, he can heal the father's unbelief. Jesus supplies what is lacking in the boy's life and he supplies what is lacking in the father's heart. You see, the presence and power of God are there if we will just see it and access it. It's there the whole time. We just have to see it to access it. And the key to this is the Father's cry. It's a prayer of faith. And I just want to pause here for a moment and say this. If you are wavering in your faith, or if you question if your faith in Jesus is real, you could start with this prayer. I believe i think lord would you help my unbelief and then keep praying it and keep praying it and keep praying it. i believe help i believe help and then when god opens your eyes to jesus's love and grace and i believe he will because god is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him turn from your sin and trust him so Jesus deals with the father, and then in verse 25, he confronts the demon. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So the spirit comes out of the boy, but he attempts to take the boy with him. The people think the boy is dead. Mark doesn't say that he did die, but at the end of verse 27, he says literally, Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. So we don't know if he's literally dead, but it appears to be a resurrection. So how does Jesus do this? He does this through prayer. Now, there's a theology of prayer that says prayer exists to get us what we want. So if we ask God for anything, he'll give us what we want. You need money? Ask God for any amount, he'll give it to you. You need better health? Ask God for the kind of mental, emotional, and physical health you want, and he'll give it. But friends, this is incredibly unbiblical, dangerous and teaches us that God is here to do our bidding. He's sort of like our dog, lap dog to come and go as as we please. The problem with this idea of prayer is, is it teaches us that prayer exists to accomplish our will. But what we see in scripture is that prayer exists not for our will, not for our purposes, but God's. We pray for God's will to be done. So, verse 28, when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't do it, he says, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. So, prayer doesn't exist to accomplish our will. Prayer is God's means for accomplishing his will, for getting his power into our lives and ministry. So, don't think that praying always means you get what you want. Prayer, though, is God's means of accomplishing his will. It's our breath of dependence, It's a cry of children to a heavenly Father. Prayer is the means by which God turns our unbelief to faith. It directs our faith towards God's presence and power. We all believe in a sovereign God when we pray. It's our confession. We can't. God, would you do it? God, we are weak. Would you be strong? True power rests in God, not in us. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient. Prayer is the point at which God's power meets our weakness. So if all of this is true, if this is what prayer does, it taps us into the presence and power of God, do you pray? Do you ever pray other than before a meal or a, quick prayer before a big test or before a job interview or something. I mean, we could run down this road and hit all of our guilty consciences because prayer is like evangelism. It's something where we, you can never pray enough. But how, what are some quick tips on praying? The first thing I would say is just pray. Literally just talk to God. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't think you got to sound like someone, um, whether you think I pray well or not. You don't don't have to sound like a a pastor or a theologian or anyone else. You just talk to God. That's what prayer is. Don't wait until you've got the perfect system. Just get in the habit of talking with God like you talk with your friend, your husband, your wife, your kids about what's going on. Just pray. Secondly, find places you can go and things you can do to help you. Pray. Pray. It might be taking a walk. It might be riding your bike. It might be getting alone in a quiet place. It's probably not curling up under the covers because you might do something else other than pray. But it might be falling asleep, praying, talking to the Lord. It might be riding in the car, leaving off the music, the podcast, whatever, and just talking to the Lord. So find places to go, things to do to pray. Thirdly, use written guides in prayer. So use a prayer list or a prayer journal. There's an app called PrayerMate. That can be helpful. Sometimes I use written journals. Sometimes I use an app. Create categories for praying for different things on different days of the week. Pray for your extended family one day. Pray for friends another day. Pray through your church directory another day. Find something that helps you pray. When we pray together in our services like we did today, engage your heart in concerted effort in praying with us or whoever's leading. We pray together. Fourthly, use scripture. I mean, the Bible is Full of prayers, full of model prayers. I mean, take a walk with your Bible open and, and pray a psalm back to God. The Lord is my shepherd. God, thank you. Thank you for being my shepherd, for leading me, for providing for my needs. Study prayers in the Old and New Testaments and let those guide your prayer time. If you don't know how to do this, a couple of great books. D.A. Carson's book, Praying with Paul. Uh, Donald Whitney's book, Praying the Bible. Both excellent books in learning how to pray scripture. So after this demonstration of Jesus's power, how did the disciples respond? Thirdly, verses 30 through 32, we see the disciples still can't. So this story ends in verses 28 and 29, where the disciples gathered privately with Jesus and he teaches them. Then in verses 30, 31, 32, we find Jesus and his disciples traveling again. And once again, Jesus is teaching his disciples that he must die, suffer, rise from the dead. I mean, it's this suffering, death and resurrection that fulfills God's redemptive plan. And yet the disciples don't see it. Verse 32, they didn't understand and they're afraid to ask him what it means. I mean, they still don't get it. I mean, there's a part of this that is due to the fact that God hasn't yet chosen to reveal Jesus's true messianic identity. That that moment is coming at the cross and it hasn't arrived yet. But this is also connected to the blindness, the hard-heartedness of the disciples. They're committed to their version of redemption, triumph, no pain. And so if there's a note that rings over and over in this passage, it's this, that the disciples are helpless without Jesus. Does God ever ask us to do things that are beyond us? Sometimes. And when he empowers us for that moment, it's to demonstrate that the power is his, not ours. So where does our weakness in these moments drive us? It drives us to prayer because prayer is where God's infinite strength meets our weakness. Uh, perhaps you've had the experience if you uh, either you can remember or you still have young children in your home and maybe they get a, a bug of some sort, fever, cold, cough, they're achy, they're cold, they're, they're slow, slowing down and they're kind of lying around. And then you pump a little uh, you know, liquid energy in the form of Tylenol or ibuprofen into that child. And within a few moments, that same child who's been weakened by that illness is getting better, moving around, picking up speed. And prayer it, it is like this, it's this injection of divine medicine for our souls. When we are weak, when we're faltering, when we're overwhelmed. Prayer injects hope. You're trying to balance work and home and failing at both. You want to be mom that your kids love, but you keep getting frustrated and then you're frustrated that you're frustrated and you're discouraged and you're depressed and you're depressed because you're depressed. We are like Jesus' disciples. We can't fix ourselves. Yet God can heal us. God may not remove the trial But in our weakness, he is demonstrated as strong. So if we press forward in faith, I believe, Lord, would you help my unbelief? We will find that God sustains us, God strengthens us, and that at the end of all things, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we will be based on Jesus's ability, not on our inability. Faith ultimately meets our need because of Christ's perfection in our place. So no matter how badly we feel in this life, we can know that Jesus's perfection is our guarantee in the next life. Thank God for the infinite power and resources of Jesus. And prayer is where God's infinite strength meets our weakness.